If you have your uh, Bibles, I invite you to turn to page uh, 1021 in the Pew Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. It's on page 1021 if you have a Pew Bible. Uh, If you don't have a Pew Bible, I can't really help you. Well, before we begin, I want to just briefly go over what we, uh, what we talked about last week, if I can, uh, just so it's uh, fresh in your minds while you're turning there. Uh, last week, I ended on these four points that what I believe 1 John chapter 2 last week was telling us was that we need to talk like Jesus, walk like Jesus, live like Jesus, and love like Jesus. Uh, the fourth point is going to be explored very heavily today. Uh, This passage that we're going to be talking about, uh, verses 7 through 12, actually, I had uh, it read to 14, but I'll actually cover those next week. Uh, But through to verse 12, it talks very heavily about love and its place in the Christian life. Uh, And so that's going to be today's topic. Now, I do want to warn you that even though that's today's topic, right in the middle, there's going to be a very heavy bit, uh, a bit that is very sad, very down, but don't worry, we'll we'll pull out of it uh, at the end if you trust me. Um, and so, if you, with that being said, we're going to, to move straight in to the first book of John, chapter 2. And we're going to just uh, start in verse 7 and just go from there. So, here we go. Chapter 2, verse 7. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And so, right from the top, we're going to look at the fact that what he's about to expound upon, what he's about to talk about, is nothing new. Uh, The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that there's nothing new under the sun, and John here is going to be talking about the fact that uh, there is no new commandment here. Uh, He's going to specify this a little bit later, uh, but what you need to understand is what he's writing to you is nothing new. When he talks about love, it's nothing new to Christians and it's nothing new to Judaism. Love is the foundation of everything. In fact, if you uh, have your Bibles and you want to turn there to Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, they'll be on the screen, but I want you always to be able to turn there if you want to, to see that I'm not making it up. Uh, You'll find this encounter of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is doing his thing. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's ministering, uh, healing the sick and the blind and all those kind of stuff. And some teachers of the law and some Pharisees come up to him and they want to trap him in a question. Uh, usually when the Pharisees and the teachers ask Jesus a question, it's actually to test his knowledge of the scripture to try and trap him in a catch-22 situation so they can say, well, see, he's not really that smart, he's not that good, he's not blessed by God, he's not what he claims to be. And so they come to him with this question, uh, and so this is what it says. uh, Verse 36, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Uh, And so this question is designed to trick him into choosing. Now, for those that don't know, there are some 613 laws in the first five books of the Bible. Uh, They're all given to to, uh, us by God, and so all of them are important. And so what these gentlemen are trying to do is boil it down very, very to a simplistic thing. Well, if there's 613, which one is the greatest? Because if Jesus says this one over here, then they can say, well, you're not really taking into account this one, and sort of trick him uh, into saying the wrong thing. And Jesus replied to them, and he said to them, You shall love the Lord with all your uh, sorry, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is actually quoting from scripture here. 
the first one he's quoting from the uh, book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. 5 and 6. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Yes, 4 and 5. So I learned that one through a song. You, you guys didn't? That's not how you learn scripture. I learned scripture through song. Uh, and so they, they sung that song, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your mind, soul, and spirit. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Yeah. <laughs> I, missed a, I missed my career on Broadway, I tell you. Uh, I'm still not re- fully recovered from musical theater camp. And so what Jesus says is he quotes the Old Testament. Now, this is very important for us as Christians to know that when Jesus was asked a question, he quoted the Old Testament. The Old Testament still has value for us. We don't throw it uh, out just because we've got this new commandment, new covenant under Jesus. There's uh, a lot of stuff in the Old Testament that is very beneficial for us as Christians. And so when Jesus is asked this question, what is the greatest commandment? He says the greatest commandment is this, love God and love others. That's it. So if you were to boil down Christianity to its very core, what Jesus is trying to say is simply this, love God and love others. Uh, Some of you may have had experiences with churches where these two things were not the priority. All these things were taken out of balance. Uh, There's a lot of churches that do the love God bit really well, but the love others they have difficulty with. I'm not sure if this is your experience. I've had this experience in churches other than the Salvation Army. Uh, I grew up in the Pentecostal church, and while I won't get into a lot of details, there was some behavior that I saw in the Pentecostal church which very much demonstrated people loved to worship themselves and not worship God. Uh, They wanted their power and their rules and their everything, but the love of God really sort of was secondary and the love of others wasn't even present. Uh, Additionally, there are some other churches that do the other thing really good. They love others really well, but they do it at the expense of loving God and following his commandments. Last week, we talked very heavily uh, about the fact that if you love Jesus, you need to do what he says. Uh, That's not a suggestion found in Scripture. That's a commandment found in Scripture. So Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so there are some churches now that do the love others really, really well, but they do it at the expense of the conviction of Scripture. And so what Jesus says is when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? What is the law? What is the number one thing we should do? He responds with love God and love others. And he says them at the same time so they can't be taken out of balance. I believe to properly love others, you need to love God. I don't believe that you can love others properly without loving God first in a spiritual sense. There might be a human sense where you can love others and a human connection, but when we're talking about spirituality and spiritual things, I truly believe that you need to love God before you can love others. But once you figure out your love for God, you should understand that then what flows is a natural extension into loving others. William Booth was famous. Uh, He had to communicate to the field. This was back before telephones were a thing. And so he had to send a telegram uh, out to the field throughout all of the countries that the Salvation Army existed in. And he had to come up with some way of motivating the people in the field. And so he did so by telegraphing a single word. And that word was others. It was a very simple way of saying that when you love God, a natural extension of that love is love for others. Because if we're being honest, the way that the church functions usually is we love God and we do that, but then everything else is sacrificed. We don't let the homeless people come in because then we're not showing reverence in the sanctuary because we've got dirty, smelly people in here. Uh, say this very delicately, so I'm not throwing anyone here under the bus, but when the children play in the sanctuary or are rowdy in the sanctuary or call out during the service, 
Some people in this congregation would say, well, they're not showing the proper reverence for God. Some people have said that. This is the admonishment stage. How you doing? I believe that children are a gift from God and that, the, that they interact with us on a church level is actually something that should be coveted. See, a child is usually a very fearful creature. For a child to call out in public means that they are comfortable enough with the family atmosphere that they feel like they're not going to get in trouble for doing it, that they feel loved. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that sort of behavior should be encouraged. Now, what I'm not saying is we're not going to let the children grab the, the offering plates and start running up and down. We're still going to do that in a nice, respectful way. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I'm saying is maybe, just maybe, that we should be encouraging our kids that once we love God, we should be in encouraging them in such a way that they feel part of this family. So they don't think that this church thing is just for those, those weird old people. Because that's us. I hate to break it to you. If you're, not, if you're in this service and not over with my wife, you're one of the old people. I hate to break it to you. I came to that realization one, uh, a couple of years ago, a few years ago when I turned 30, that I was no longer in the young bracket, that I could no longer go to young adult retreat by myself. I had to go as a chaperone or a, a helper. That was a very sad day for me. I, some of you don't appreciate this, but for me, that was like the killing of my innocence. Uh, the day that I had to, to be a chaperone or a, a Bible study leader to go to young adult retreat. But I, I don't want to belabor this point too much because I've got a lot more to say um, on this particular scripture. But I, I, I want to, if there's nothing you take away from this sermon, I want you to understand that loving God and loving others are the most important things you can do as a Christian. There are so many churches that do this wrong, that speak with hate, that speak with uh, fear and intimidation and who let's be honest, they're not reflective of Christ. And I want us to be a church that does this well, that loves God and loves others. Moving on, 1 John chapter 2, now verse 8. Yeah, that was all verse 7. We've got four more verses to go, strap in. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So right now we've got a little bit of a contradiction. The verse before he said, this is not a new thing. And now what he's saying, this is a new thing. So we need to uh, figure out exactly what he's trying to say here. Well, what's really interesting is not only does this constitute a new commandment, but what we also need to look at is, if you remember, the author of First John is also the author of the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, you can look at this in John 13, 34. Jesus said this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now, the reason this is interesting is because we just read that this is also the old commandment. And so what Jesus is doing is he's uh, reissuing this commandment. Uh, so let me explain briefly. There are 613 laws in the Old Testament, as, as we've already sort of discussed a little bit. And all of them are important, but two of them are the greatest and can be boiled down at the essence of the law. Love God and love others. So what Jesus is trying to do is with Jesus coming and fulfilling the Old Testament law, he's saying, even though I have fulfilled the law, you still need to do this thing. Okay you still need to love God and you still need to love others. In fact, you need to leave, love others the same way that I have loved you. How did Christ love us? He died for us. He sacrificed his life for us. He sacrificed 
Uh, as a human, I imagine Jesus growing up had dreams. Maybe he didn't want to be a carpenter. Maybe he wanted to be a blacksmith. I don't know. I wasn't there. However, maybe he had dreams just like many kids have dreams until he came to the realization that he was there to do his father's will. And then he gave up those dreams for us. There are many ways that Jesus' life and death was sacrificial love for us. Us. And so what Christ is saying here is that he, uh, the, the new commandment that he's giving to us is that we love one another as Christ loved us. Now, interestingly here, uh, he doesn't say uh, love Christians just as I have loved you. He doesn't say uh, love uh, people who bathe regularly just as I have loved you. He doesn't say love people who have enough money in their bank account just as I loved you. He says love others as I have loved you. And again, I'm going to be ragging on the church a little bit here. Sometimes we don't do this well, even though it is a commandment of Christ. Uh, a commandment is just that. It is not a suggestion. It's saying, if you love me, if you follow me, if you call yourself a Christian, a new commandment I give to you. I want you to love others just as I have loved you. And so we move on to 1 John 2, 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. And this is where it's going to get slightly heavy uh, as I talk just a little bit uh, about darkness versus light and this concept. Uh, so this is not a new concept. This is a concept that was around in Greek philosophy for a very long time. The concept is quite simple. Darkness equates to evil and goodness equates to light. Are you with me so far? I know basic stuff, uh, but... What John is doing is John, who was very attuned to uh, both Judaism and its theology, which was mirrored very closely in Greek uh, sort of philosophy. And so if you were to track through the Old Testament, you could see a lot of times that darkness was equated to either evil or ignorance, and light was equated to truth, love, and knowledge. Uh, the ultimate example is found in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through about 7, where God's creating the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the, and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, so he separated the light from the darkness. The light he called day, and the darkness he called night, and it was evening and it was morning the first day. Now, the darkness and the light were conflicting things, and so he separated them, and the light he called good, and the darkness he called not good, and that thinking and understanding of light and darkness then continued on throughout the history of the children of Israel and into the New Testament. So all of that is at the, the background of what we're about to discuss here when we talk about darkness versus true light. And what you need to know is up until this point, the history of the world has been darkness. If you were to track some of the historical events in history through up to this point, and even if you didn't track uh, regular non-religious historic events, but just tracked religious historic events, things that happen based on religion, you would see that the world up until this part is a uh, place of darkness and death. Uh, in fact, what did I write here? If you tracked every world religion to this point, they've all been about violence, hate, and intolerance. If you start with some of the very first religions, some of the, the Canaanite religions of the Old Testament... Uh, and do I have a list? I have a list. So if you track Egypt, you'll find uh, in Egypt, which is one of the oldest world religions uh, or empiric religions that you can find, the uh, uh, Canaanites and some of the, the smaller ones have, have 
religions, but Egypt was really one of the first what we would consider world religion because they had an empire that extended out of their home territory. Canaanite had their religions, but they didn't have an empire. So Egypt uh, believed many different things, and the, the key point of their religion was that everything came from chaos. There was no created order. It was not created by a loving God. It was actually created by two gods fighting, and out of that fighting came the world. And so uh, they believed that all material, material things came out of chaos, darkness, and, uh, and, and that sort of area. Uh, Egypt then became a very dark religion where there were certain sects that sacrificed people, that, that made human sacrifices. The Canaanite religion, uh, often when you worship some of their fertility gods, required you to sacrifice children to those gods. Uh, so babies as young as nine to six months old. Uh, Babylon, there's some really weird, horrible stuff if you were to read through the history of the Babylon people of how they treated people, both their religious treatment and their non-religious treatment. They had a mystery religion which centered around, again, uh, sacrifices of uh, children and other people. Uh, the Assyrians, uh, if you remember a few weeks ago when we were in our sermon series on Jonah, I talked about how bad the Assyrian people were uh, when how they treated men, women, and children. Uh, they threw children off the walls of their city. Uh, they killed uh, the women inside of the city after raping them. They took the men from uh, inside the city out of the city. They flayed them, so they took all the skin from their bones, and then they buried them up to their necks, and then they took their tongues out and staked their tongues to the ground so they would die of thirst. Not nice people, right? Are you getting that sort of tract here? Uh, Greece were kind of the nicest of these, but they still did things like human sacrifices. Uh, the Persians... Uh, were the ones that actually invented crucifixion as a method of execution, but for them, they would put a stake in the ground, sharpen the point, take the individual, and just throw them on the point. That's how they executed people. The Romans, who up until this point were considered, what, the light of the known world, that they were the center of democracy and civilization, and the Romans were really these great people, uh, the Romans took the method of execution developed by the Persians and perfected it, and it was them that actually decided that they were going to nail people to a crossbeam because it would actually last longer. If you threw someone on a stake, all their blood just poured out straight away. Uh, it, it didn't really delay death. The Romans perfected execution to delay death to the maximum amount of pain that they could extract from an individual before they died. Okay? They're not nice people. Uh, in fact, one of the things that they did is later on in the crucifixion scene, they actually uh, invented a, a nice little seat that they could put on so that the person sitting would actually be able to sit on that seat while they were being crucified so they could lift their lungs up to breathe so that crucifixion would last longer. They created crucifixion or perfected crucifixion to extract the last ounce of excruciating pain from a victim. Up until the point of Christianity, the world was a dark, horrific, uncivilized place. When you look at what's happening now in today over in uh, the Middle East, when you look at some of the things done by ISIS and some of the other groups over there, that's what the entire world was like. I'm trying to get across this, this really one simple point, that the world was a dark place. It was not a place of happy, happy fun times. You did not have the freedom of speech that we enjoy in this country. You did not have the freedom of assembly that we enjoy in this country. You did not have the freedom of a uh, press to actually say anything against their government. Really, if you so showed that you were out of place in any way, shape, or form, you would be killed. 
And I'm not saying that in, with the uh, adoption of Christianity that the world instantly got better and now we're living in this wonderful uh, place of light and sunshine and lollipops. But when we're reading through the book of 1 John and he says, I am writing to you which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. What he's talking about is the fact that in this dark world, the only true source of light is Jesus Christ. Uh, in case you're wondering, this was the heavy part of the sermon. We're now going to hopefully lift out of our tail dive and I'm going to make you laugh just a little bit and we'll get out of here on, on a fun note. But I want you to realize that in the darkness of the world, the only true light is Jesus Christ. Uh, a lot of people will say that things like philosophy and civilization are uh, lights in our cultures. And they are and they aren't. They are in a non-sustainable way. I'm not sure if you've, you know this about philosophy, but philosophy changes as the years go by. Uh, if you were to go into philosophy department of a college now, it would be very different than the philosophy college of 20 to 30 years ago. Just in that short time, philosophy changes. Uh, you had philosophy in places like ancient Greeks, and they would come together and they would try and make these grand deductions on about the universe and the way that human beings existed and lived and the way that we would have lived together. Uh, and then if you track philosophy, it, it goes in these waves of being ultra about individuals and then being ultra about society and then back to individuals. And so even philosophy can be a light for a small period of time, but it's not a sustainable light. The only sustainable light that we have in this world is Jesus Christ. And I think this is what John is trying to say. Uh, in the, the time of John, again, uh, I want to remind you of some of the, the reasons why he's writing this book. He's writing it to combat the rise of Gnosticism, which was a particular cult which borrowed imagery from Christianity, but essentially sold its knowledge for salvation. He said, if you want to be saved, you want to go to heaven, you need to know what we know, and the only way you can know that is by joining us, giving us your money, and we'll be able to save you. Does that sound like any televangelist tele that you might have heard of? Just slight little, you give me money, I'll give you the secret knowledge, you get to go to heaven. That happens every time I turn on the Christian channel. That happens every time I go into Barnes & Noble and I go into the Christian self-help guide. I, okay, side note. Sidebar, if we can, I've got the time because I am in charge. Sidebar over here, I'll even move over here so you know this is a sidebar. The word Christian self-help is an oxymoron. These two, the, for those that can't hear, a carol just from the back yelled out with the emphasis on moron. Um, I'm the one that makes the jokes, not Carol. Anyway, back to my sidebar. Uh, Christian self-help does not exist. If you want to help yourself, you're not a Christian. The entire idea of Christianity is that you rely on Christ to help you. Now, what I'm not saying is that there are people that you can go to for advice. That's great, that's fine. There are people uh, you can come to church and rely on the fellowship of believers to uh, instill you with confidence, to lift you up, to do life and do society together. However, if you go into Barnes & Noble and you pick up a self-help book that says it's Christian-based and says the way that you can fix your life is by doing step A, step B, and step C, and none of them has anything to do with Christ or the church, that is wrong, okay? Just plain wrong. I, I, I want to be nice. I don't, you know, some, some of these books are written in good faith. Some of these books are read in good faith, but I need to let you know that if you're not relying on Christ and the Bible, you are, it's just wrong. It shouldn't be in the Christian section, okay? 
That's my sidebar, not in my notes. It just aggravates me. In fact, um, I'll tell you a story, and I got into trouble for this. I shouldn't tell you the story, but I think it's a good story. When I lived in Bozeman, Montana, there wasn't a lot to do. We had a Barnes and Nobles, and so I went into the Barnes and Nobles, and I took all of a certain preacher, I'm not supposed to mention his name because it might get me in trouble, but he's got this really big smile like he's a Colgate person, uh, and he runs a church down in Texas. A couple of you know who I'm talking about. And I took all of his books from the Christian section, and I put them into the Christian fiction section. (laughs) Again, this was Bozeman, Montana. I didn't have a lot to do. That's not an excuse, and I was a little bit rasher in my younger years. However, the point still stands. None of what he said in any of those books had anything to do with Christianity. It was about the cult of himself and him trying to get more money and power. Uh, And that was borne out by the next book deal he got. He got a $10, $15 million advance before he'd written the book. That's all I've got to say about that. That's not all I've got to say about that, but I don't have time. Maybe that's a sermon in and of itself. The, The point I'm trying to make is simply this. The world up until this point had been a very dark place, both religiously, morally, uh, and even philosophically. The idea of Christ's coming and some of the things that he expounded was revolutionary in the, in the realm of world religions. Up until this point, you'd never have a, had a religion that said, all you need to do is believe in me. Up until this point, every religion, every cult, everything had said, if you want to be saved, you need to do X, Y, and Z. Usually it involves giving your money. A lot of the times it involved making an offering of a physical nature, either grain or cattle. And then sometimes in the very dark religions that I went over, it involved the shedding of blood of innocent people, both children and adults. Every world religion up until this point said, you need to do something in order to get into heaven. You need to do X, Y, Z, you need to perform something so that God isn't mad at you anymore. Even Judaism, which was given to us by God uh, to be a stopgap measure until Christ came, had its foundations based in sacrificial uh, religion. You had to sacrifice certain things in order to appease God. And now God put them all on a slate, and there was just one, uh, at the end of the day, at the end of the year, there was one offering that covered everything for the whole next year. So it wasn't expansive, but it was still uh, to do with the shedding of blood. And so when Christ came and Christ said, no, 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 you don't understand. Uh, You know exactly where you stand with me at all times. And this is what's different from every other world religion. In every other world religion, you don't know where you stand with God. Let me explain, because I've got the time. In every world religion, what you would do is you would offer something. So let's uh, say, for example, we offered a sack of grain to our God. We worship a a God of the rain, so we want it to rain because we're a a crop person and we have grain. So we offer a sack of grain. Two things is going to happen. Either the next year your grain harvest is going to go well or your grain harvest is going to go poorly. If your grain harvest goes poorly, clearly you didn't offer enough in the first place, so the next year you have to offer more. Are you with me so far? Good. If your harvest goes great, then the next year when you make your sacrifices, you need to offer more because you can't offend the God by by giving him the same amount that you gave last year because last year he blessed you, and so now I need to offer more. And so every religion up until this point was predicated on a simple fact that every time you made an offering, you had to offer more. And so once you had six, seven bags of grain, and that's not enough, well, maybe if if I... 
kill a chicken, maybe that's going to be enough because the chicken has blood, life, is, life comes from the blood, and so that is a great offering. The, the chicken can reproduce by itself, so I'm offering something to my fertility God. And so we offer a chicken, but then the next year, well, was one chicken enough, or do I have to do two, or three, or four? And then maybe the chicken is a lower life form, so it's not good enough, so maybe I need to sacrifice a goat. Then a couple of years down the track, maybe the goat's not good enough, so I have to sacrifice a cow or an ox. And then a couple of years goes by, and maybe the cow and the ox isn't good enough, so now I have to sacrifice a child. That's how these religions progressed. If you study world religions, ancient world religions, that's how every single world religion progressed. And then you had Jesus Christ step onto the scene and said, no, 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 I'm the sacrifice, and that's it. You don't have to continually sacrifice. You don't have to continually give. You don't have to ever worry about where you stand with me. All you need to do is believe in the name of Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It was revolutionary in the world religion scene. It was no longer a works-based system, but a grace-based system. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. It meant that Christ was the one that was paying for everything. Christ was the one that was the center. Christ was the one that you had to rely in. You didn't have to rely on yourself. You didn't have to pray five times a day at particular places facing particular directions. You didn't have to make specific sacrifices to specific deities to get specific responses. Uh, if you were sick, you prayed to God. If you were healthy, you prayed to God. If you needed something, you prayed to God. Everything went through Jesus Christ. It was revolutionary. And so what John is trying to point out from here on out is, is quite simple, is that from this point that that light of Christ is then going to spread out through the world. That if you start with a single point and nothing gets in its way, that light is going to spread fast and furious. And when you look at the rise of Christianity throughout the world, it was fast, it was furious, and it was not a bad movie. Because The Fast and the Furious is a bad movie. Now, uh, we're moving on because I don't want to get shot. Uh, to verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in them there is no cause for stumbling. So what he's saying now is he's marrying these two ideas. So the two ideas we've had so far is that love is the ultimate commandment. Love God, love others. That's it. That's the ball game. But then also that the light of Jesus is here, it is illuminating a dark world, and it is spreading. And so we're now marrying those two ideas by saying this, whoever loves his brother, so love being the greatest commandment, abides in the light. So he's saying, and marrying these two ideas, that the love of God is also uh, then in the light of God. And when the light of God goes out, so does the love of God. And so if you spread Christianity in the way that God intends you to spread it through love, then other people are reactive to that love, and then the light of God goes out, and it continues going out. Um, some of you, uh, I was going to use this as an example, but then I realized my audience, but I'm going to use it anyway because I don't have another example, uh, is cloud-based computing where you have multiple servers going all around the world, and you can connect to any given one of them at any given time, but they all contain the same information. And it bounces back and forth at the speed of light or the speed of whatever the electronic thing moves at these days. And so what you have is this network of people who all know the same information. And that's what Christianity is like. You start with an individual, but that individual isn't to keep Christianity to themselves. Christianity is not a secret religion. It's not based, it's basing its membership on whether or not you've given X amount of dollars or you've said amen X amount of times during the sermon, which, by the way, I'm very disappointed with all of you this week. Um, 
or, or if you've raised your hand so many times, or if you've paid so much money into the offering plate, or you know which, which of the, uh, the choruses that we clap on the choruses and, and we don't, because the Salvation Army is kind of weird. There's only some choruses that we clap on, others we don't. Don't go there. I haven't figured it out, and I've been in it for a long time. Um, and, and so the idea is that if you love your brother, you're in the light, and that helps the message go out. Because I don't know if you figured this out or not, but if you walk up to someone with a Bible and you hit them over the back of the head and say, hey, you're going to hell, the love of God and the light of God is not going to be extended very far. Now, I'm not saying that there's not an appropriate time to talk about hell because it's in Scripture and we believe in it, but what I'm saying is you don't lead with that. You don't lead with to, to a person, especially in today's society and especially in the way that our world works today, which is a relationship-driven model. You don't start with, hey, guess what? You're going to hell. You start with, hey, guess what? God loves you. We live in a society where people are told day in, day out, minute in, minute out, that they're not good enough. If you go online and you make one wrong statement, that's it, you're done, you are lampooned. You are blasted. You say the wrong thing on Twitter, it explodes. We live in a culture and a society that is constantly telling us that we're not good enough. So can you imagine how a message of God being inclusive, saying that he loves everyone, resounds? And so we don't lead with hate or fear. We lead with love, which is incidentally exactly what Christ did. If you go to the scriptures and you look at the way that Jesus Christ interacted with people, he always led with love. He never led with hate. He never led with condemnation. Now, that being said, there's a story again in the Gospel of John when a woman is caught in adultery and is brought before Jesus. There's a group of people around him that says, uh, you need to condemn her. Jesus is, is kneeling down and drawing in the ground. Scripture doesn't tell us what he's drawing. I want to know more than anything else in Scripture. Like, of all the mysteries of Scripture, the, the one that I want to know the most is what Jesus was drawing in the ground. I don't know why, that's just me, I'm a weird person. We've all established this, well established that I'm a very weird person. However, Jesus is drawing in the ground, and he says to them, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, I, I, I like to imagine this particular story, and I'll take a couple of minutes here just to, to explain why I love this story. I can imagine this scene, Jesus is at the center, looking down. The scripture never says that he looks up or makes eye contact with anyone until... Uh, at the end of the story. So I imagine Jesus is just looking down. Uh, I imagine that the Pharisees and Sadducees and teachers of the law have formed a complete circle around Jesus. Maybe it was a half shoe, but I think it would have been a complete circle to try and intimidate Jesus to bring, bring this message in. This woman is grabbed, physically dragged in and thrown down next to Jesus. It says that she was brought before him. The way that the Pharisees and Sadducees worked, I can't believe that was like she was brought in on a donkey or like in any form of respect. She was a sinner. She was being dragged in to face punishment. And then these men, I want to imagine that they thought Jesus was going to say, she's been caught in adultery. You need to stone her according to the law. So I imagine that they brought their own rocks with them uh, because that's what they did in their culture. When they were going to a stoning, you brought rocks with you. It's what you did. And so I imagine all of these men were standing around the, the woman and Jesus with these rocks in their hands. And Jesus said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Here's what I imagine. I imagine that all the old men dropped their rocks first. I don't imagine that they all dropped their rocks in a single, like just one boom, thud, and they all walked away. Because that's not how humans work. 
Uh, humans work by processing information. Some process it fast, some others. I believe that the old men dropped their rocks first because they'd lived a full life and they knew very well that they were not without sin. And so trickle by trickle, little rocks start to, to thud and hit the ground. I think the young men would have stood the longest because young men have this burning righteousness in them where we try and argue with everything that we've done wrong and try and justify it, saying, well, it wasn't really a sin because X, Y, Z. But at the end of the day, some, the, the young men were dropping their rocks too. And then after it had been silent for a little bit, after all the rocks had thudded, now I want you to imagine what it's like for this woman in this, in this moment, because she's hearing thud, and every time she hears a thud, I imagine that she's worried that one of those rocks is actually flying towards her. Can you imagine that fear in that moment for that young lady? But all of these rocks drop to the ground, and then it's quiet for a little bit. And Jesus finally looks up, looks around, and there's no one left. It's just him and the woman. And he says to her, does no one here condemn you? To which she replies, obviously, no, they've all left. And Jesus replies, neither then do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus led with a message of love, but it was not a message of absolute tolerance. He didn't say, go and continue in your sinning habits, just come to church on Sunday, get baptized, do communion, and you'll be fine. He didn't say, just pray the Lord's Prayer, and then you'll be good for all eternity. He didn't say anything other than, go and sin no more. We lead with love but we need to include the fact that Jesus expects a certain type of behavior for those who love him. Here, John equates hate with stumbling. He says anyone who is found in hate in their heart uh, stumbles. And so we know that hate is a sin. I want to talk a little bit more about it, but I'll get there at the end. So verse 11 Whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I want to talk to you in our, in our closing minutes here of the idea of equating hate with sin. Now, again, we live in a society that tells us if, you, if someone does something to you, you are entitled to revenge. Um, there was a ABC uh, television series that was actually entitled Revenge and went for like five or six seasons and it was all about someone getting revenge on people who had wronged her family. Revenge is this thing that is very heavily prevalent in our society. If someone does something to you, you're entitled to do something back. Uh, back in the Old Testament, this system was called an eye for an eye. Uh, the equivalence was simply, if someone does something to you, you have the right to take revenge and justice out on them. Now, I want you to understand that the idea of justice is actually given to us from God. Justice is not wrong. It is, in fact, a godly thing. Uh, there is no one, if someone broke into your house, I don't believe anyone here would, if someone broke into your house and killed your family, you wouldn't want that person to go to jail, okay? Justice is a God-given inherent character of humanity. It comes from God because our God is a God of justice. When you read through the Old Testament, 
God very often comes off as a God of wrath and sort of like a petulant schoolchild who doesn't want to play with others, and so he just strikes them dead for the fun of it. But what you need to realize is all throughout the Old Testament, God is actually administering his justice. And God's justice is perfect. It never goes astray. Everyone that God kills in the Old Testament and the New Testament deserve it because they broke his laws. Are you with me so far? Yes, good, wonderful. The punishment of sin is death. We read that in the book of Romans 3.23, for the wages of sin is death. Everything up until this point, every time that you broke one of God's law, you should have been killed for it. God should have immediately struck us down and killed us. However, he didn't. What he did was, is he delayed he delayed punishment until the end times. Now, I want to be really careful with this because I do believe that there are different types of wrath that God displays. There is active wrath, there's passive wrath, uh, there's a whole bunch of different things. So I don't want to get too involved here, but I want you, you to understand what I'm trying to say is that the active wrath of God is delayed until the end times. There is still passive wrath that we're under, but the active wrath, that is God striking down people, is delayed until the end times. We read that throughout uh, the book of Romans. We find that in Thessalonians. We find that in the book of Revelation. Now, here's where I'm going with this. Anyone who hates walks in darkness. Darkness here is equated to a sinful lifestyle. So what John is trying to say is anyone who hates, who has hate in their heart, is not truly a Christian. Now, again, this is not me judging you. I don't know you guys that well. I love you, and you're like family to me, but just like family, I don't know every intimate detail of your life. So this is not me judging you. This is me trying to expound what Scripture says. All right? Are you with me? And, and so what Scripture says is if you hate, that makes you a sinner. And if you're a sinner, it means that you are justly exposed to the wrath of God. Here's why I want to bring this up. Our society is built around hate. It is not built around love. Um, we are conditioned from birth to hate others. Some people are conditioned to hate based on the, the color of a person's skin. Some people are conditioned to hate based on a socioeconomic level, how much money you have in the bank. We don't like those poor people. Let's just stick them off to the side. Uh, they're weird. They can't pull themselves up. They're not worth it. We're conditioned. I, I don't know how you were raised. I know the way that I was raised, and we won't go into that, but I feel like our society is conditioned and built around hate. And so what John here is saying is anyone who hates is in darkness. Anyone in darkness is not a Christian, therefore you're exposed to the wrath of God. He is warning people that stumbling in darkness is a bad thing. But what he's also trying to argue is that if you were to compare these two things between stumbling in darkness and walking in the light, walking in the light is better. Like, I, I, I don't know, okay. I cannot sleep in a room where there's any light. I need darkness in order to sleep. However, when I need to get up in the middle of the night to use the restroom, the room is completely dark. There have been many times where I believe I may have lost my salvation because as I'm walking along, I have stubbed my toe. Now, not just the little stub, but the type of stub where the pinky toe is like completely bent out at an angle and I fall over in pain. You, you, have you ever experienced this? Maybe it's just me, maybe I'm a clutch. 
clots. Uh, my bed, there's a big thing on the side. Sometimes if I'm walking the wrong angle, I'll walk my knee straight into it. Again, I'll fall over and lose my salvation for a couple of minutes. Um, stumbling around in the darkness is nothing compared to walking in the light. Why would you choose to stumble in darkness when the love and light of Christ has been revealed to you? I don't understand why there are so many Christians who refuse to forgive, who have hearts bent on hate, who walk and stumble around in the darkness when the light and love and forgiveness of Christ is there and they've already experienced it. It doesn't make sense. And so... One of the things that Christ, uh, what John here is trying to say is that you've been forgiven. That one of the things that we do is we say in the back of our minds, you don't know what I've done. Christ can't forgive me because I've done X, Y, and Z in my life. But what John is trying to say is it doesn't matter what you've done in your life. There is nothing that the grace of God can't cover. There is nothing that the light and love of God can't forgive you for. And so he says here, as he ends it in verse uh, 11 and 12, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for the, his name's sake or for the sake of his name. For the name of Christ, our sins are forgiven. And that is open to anyone at any time, anywhere. It's not based on the color of your skin or the money that you have in your bank account or how many times you go to church or how many times you raise your hand or read scripture or say amen when the preacher is on fire or doing any of these things. It's not based on that. It is simply and utterly based on the sake of Christ, on the name of Jesus. That's it. That's the whole ball game. It is not more complicated than that, and too many churches and too many religions try and make it more complicated. It's not, do you believe in Jesus? If so, you're saved. And if you are saved, you get to walk in the light and love of God, that you don't have to live with this fear of condemnation over your head, that you don't have to live like you've done something wrong, because yes, you've done something wrong, but Christ has already forgiven you for it. Amen? And so I, I want to end our time here today just by simply saying, if you are living in darkness, if you don't know Christ and you're currently living in darkness, you, we can fix that right here, right now. Uh, if you know Christ, but you've slipped back into darkness, we can fix that right here, right now. If you are living and loving in the light like you should be, we don't need to fix it, but we can celebrate right here, right now. All we're going to do right now is we're going to finish with a time of prayer. And then Heidi is going to come up and sing our benediction for us. But I want you to think of these things yourself. Look, some religions you need the pastor in order to get you saved. That is completely wrong according to Scripture. Uh, your relationship with Christ is based around your relationship with Christ, not mine. And not my ability to talk to him, but your ability to talk to him. So we're going to pray in our seats uh, where we are, uh, and then we are going to uh, sing our benediction. But I want, I want, I want, I want you to take a stock of your life. And I, I, I believe that those are the only three categories you can fall into. Either you don't know Christ and you're walking and stumbling in darkness, or you do know Christ, but something has slipped into your heart and is blocking that relationship, and you're walking and stumbling in darkness. Or you know Christ and you're walking in the light and love of Christ. That's it. There's no real other alternatives for you here. And so as we pray, I just want you to take stock of where you think you are on that scale. And there is no judgment, there's no condemnation for wherever you are on that scale. But all you need to know is to fix it, all you need to do is pray. You pray to God for your salvation.
you pray to God that he removes the stumbling block from your heart, or you pray to God and thank him for his amazing grace. That's it. Are you with me? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity you've given us today to come into your presence and to talk about your word. I pray, Lord God, for every person who is here, that you be with us, that you be in our hearts. Lord, for those that do not know you, I pray, Lord God, that you reveal your awesome presence to their lives right now. For those who aren't sure about you, who maybe have a bad uh, recollection or uh, understanding of what church is supposed to be about, that you reveal your loving nature and your grace nature to them. I pray, Lord God, that those that maybe know you, but for some reason they have a stumbling block in their heart, that you remove that stumbling block. Maybe, Lord, there are people here who can't forgive others because of how they've been wronged. Lord, I beg you to show them that they can forgive and they can love because you have loved us. And Lord, for those that are walking in the light and who love you, I pray, Lord God, that you give us a recommitment to you that every day as we go from this place that we can spread that light out into the world because the world is a dark and hurting place that needs your light and your love more than ever before. I pray, Lord God, that you're with us now until we meet together again. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.